Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 11th of March, 2020. As I promised, today I'm going to step one category back from my typical biochemical molecular genetics, molecular physiology lectures. And I'm going to talk about the grounding or the foundation of where I come to science and how I can generate scientific principles from what I observe as a researcher and also as a person who has studied uh, at the level of a professor for most of my life, some 33 plus years. What I mean by that is how does research and how does science function relative to what we call knowledge? So I'm going to discuss uh, the grounding of my epistemology, like how do we know things, and also how that epistemology fits into what actually is, or the metaphysics, because science is going to be uh, ultimately and intimately related to those two principles. So how we go about doing science has a big part to play in what we say science actually is. Is sub science, for example, objective reality, or is it something less than that? And I would argue that, first off, we think in causal relationships. All humans do. And these causal categories that we think about, cause and effect, for example, space and time, for example, <clears throat> those are convenient categories of thought. I would argue of following a long tradition of arguments in the favor of this, that they are not categories of reality. And you'll see as I go on why I, I hold that position. And it's not, of course, any kind of detraction from science. It simply means that science, if we go beyond what science is really doing, which is describing the way our mind comprehends and extends and indeed instantiates the world. We go beyond that and say that is the world, that that's arguing for something that's beyond what logic will allow. So it's a paralogism. And I don't want to do that because I want to stay within the framework of logic because logic is basically the beginning of, or, or as uh, Kant put it, the vestibule of reason. And I want to make sure I stay within the rational patterns uh, of human existence. So, but that is a forerunner to all of this. Let me get started in this discussion. As a scientist, I am trained to recognize patterns in nature and to evaluate mechanisms and natural events according to principles that have been previously established, which are, of course, the source of those recognized patterns. In chemistry and physics, for example, these and biology, these principles and patterns follow a general rule. The rule that uh, you can extract from these principles is very basic. Form begets function. And there's an underlying aspect of this concept, which are the general truths that we agree to. And those concern cause and effect, space and time. These are all categories. And for example, in science, a distinction between energy and matter. 
keep on adding things to that, right? Enzyme proteins that function as catalysts are enzymes. Lipids that function uh, as membranes are phospholipids and sphingolipids. That sort of that sort of discussion. Now, it should be understood that our scientific methods, which of course include uh, inquiry, observation, hypothesis, and usually an ex following that, an experimental design to test those hypotheses, the careful procedures of a controlled experiment with standard methods and protocols, followed by ultimately an accumulation of data and the parsing of the raw data into a pre-evidence, and that pre-evidence ultimately has to be verified before we make a movement in our knowledge, in our, uh, an epistemological movement, which is then inductive. And then we reach the next level of category of knowledge, which in science, which is called theory. So the new theory then begins these recursive methods over again, the ones I just described to you. And they're directed towards disproving theory at the outset, disproving the null hypothesis by dissolving it into a new set of hypotheses that are indeed deductively reasoned. And then subsequently and sequentially, there's a follow through of the course of that scientific method, that recursive method. So this method is discursive and dialectical in its vectorial towards some goal, a telos, that has established a better explain the universe in which we live. That's what science is all about, to give us a better explanation. It's something we're putting into the world. We're saying, we have, we have evidence, we've reasoned what this evidence means, and now we're giving a clear image of what they say the world is. Now that's really an important thing to consider at the very beginning of this discussion. Because it says basically a fundamental principle that many people in science do not understand. And that is the world conforms to our knowledge. And we call that in uh, philosophical terms, a synthesis, a synthesis of all the information that we've gathered. And the synthesis is conducted a priori. That is, we have an a priori, a knowledge before we get new information, new insight, and, and new intuition, which means basically sense data. When we get new sense data, we're using the operation, the mechanism of our brain, which is built in a way, kind of like how an ice cube tray takes in liquid water, and depending on how the ice cube tray is broken up in compartments, when the water solidifies, that could be like new sense data coming in, in my metaphor here. Once it solidifies, then it has a structure to it, right? And remember, I told you that structure begets function, in, especially in biochemistry, which is something I always tell my students. So this is really important to understand, okay? This is really a fundamental thing that... The synthetic a priori movement I'm talking about means that our knowledge does not conform to the world, okay, but that the world conforms to our knowledge. The clearer the image is that we develop as scientists, that's what we say the world is. 
the world isn't just informing us what it is, right? We are putting ourselves into the world, right? And in so doing with our method, our synthetic a priori method, and, uh, and I would add to that, it's a transcendental method, which means that it, the means by which we go about addressing the world has to do with the way that our mind works. And our mind is, of course, causally regulated by our senses, arithmetically, sequentially with time, and then geometrically, spatially, right, in space. So you get space and time derived from that kind of consideration. That's really important to understand. So the categories that we think about in terms of the categories of thought, like how we go about synthesizing a priori new data, right, new raw sense data, is basically saying that epistemology, right, how knowledge works, is not based on what, what the objective world is telling us, but what we are interpreting the objective world is, okay? So the categories that I'm talking about, of course, relate to modality and relation, right? So when you think about um, do things, uh, things must exist? Uh, can they exist? And do they exist? Those are modalities. Relation has to do with how one thing relates to another and how that then can instantiate the meaning of the information comparatively, or as I said, discursively. So that's a relation. And what are the other two sorts of categories that we can derive? Right? Well, think about it. Um, and I'll come back to it in a moment, but I want you to start understanding that reasoning itself is the key component to how science works. And even with a scientific worldview, we're not actually saying that there is such a thing as an objective reality. We're only saying that we can derive a reality from it. Okay? And that's really an important thing. So going back to my categories, you also have quantity and quality how much of something exists, and what is it made of? Okay, what kind of stuff is it? So again, the categories, quality, quantity, modality, and relation. Those are the general categories of thought. They're not categories of reality, okay? So the other, the other aspect I want you to understand, this is really important, is that you have an you have a, a difference of opinion when you talk about objective truths and subjective truths. Now, from the metaphysical position, as a metaphysician, what you should understand, and this comes from people like Barclay, and then, of course, Kant really established it, is that something that's subjective from the metaphysical point of view is that it is in your mind. It's all it means. It's in your mind. Whereas objective means it's something independent of any mind. Now try to think of anything about the natural world that is independent of any mind. You can't really come up with anything. The only thing you can determine is that if there is something, it's something that we know nothing about, right? That which is itself, right? The thing in itself. And that has multiple ways of describing it, but that would be called the noumena. 
Whereas everything about the about the physical world, everything science talks about, everything that we exist within, being there within, that's the world of phenomena, because our senses are linked to it, and our reason is linked to our senses. Okay. Now, there's also a different way of talking about objective and subjective, and I want to make clear because these are terms you need to discuss. There's an attitudinal version of objective versus subjective. So the attitudinal one is more like the approach that you come towards something, right? So an objective one is a detached spectator approach, okay? So that's an attitudinal term for objective. Whereas a subjective means you're involved or you're passionate about it. So we're not talking about the attitudinal aspect of subjective objective. We're talking about the metaphysical. And that's how I'm arguing against an objective reality. Because our senses are always involved. The lens is always through our senses. And the mind, remember the ice cube tray, is already preforming an a priori, a priori method, a transcendental method in which to derive concept from sense data, okay? That's really important for you to understand where I'm coming from. So let's move on from there. So nowhere in the method, okay, that we've been talking about is it established that there must be an objective reality, only that there are patterns and forms that can be recognized scientifically, and ultimately they can be articulated through a rigorous research campaign, right? That it doesn't produce an objective reality requires some more clarity, perhaps, of the argument. So again, let me let me make sure you I can emphasize this where I'm coming from. An objective truth must be one that is not the product of the mind, while a subjective truth is the offspring of contemplation. There are no means in nature or that can be realized by human invention which will guarantee a method free from human intervention. For example, all of science is indeed the product of the human mind. If there were a means to bracket off our sensoria, right, our five senses, and make ourselves capable of an observational perch above phenomena, we might then achieve a means to pursue metaphysical objective reality. However, since there are no means by which we can experience the world without our senses, that project is going to fail before it even begins. Therefore, again, I want to emphasize, I obtain that all of science is indeed okay, something I call subjective. Right? It's a collective subjective reality from the metaphysical point of view. Now, it doesn't mean we don't act as if our scientific worldview is reality, of course we do. Or that we are compelled to treat it uh, as anything other than that. My statements are only allowing that we don't have a good argument, a sound, logical argument. Think about, again, the vestibule of a church. When you first walk into a church, you first walk into a beautiful building or even your own home. So you don't have a good argument in favor of calling it objective truth. Now, there is a means to imagine the world as it is. It has been called, again, the transcendental method. If you want to look up the um, genealogy of that term, go and read Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, which was published in 1781. 
Now, the method, transcendental method, involves an examination of the means by which we draw conclusions that lead to a worldview that best explains, that's again, that's scientific perspective. Remember, I'm talking as a scientist, that best explains our observations and which help us to uh, generate laws. And that law then, or those laws that we can find, uh, and the learning of those laws allow us for to grind out a metaphysical accounting of the physical world. So that transcendental method takes those patterns and forms as what I'm calling a synthetic process, the synthesis of the a priori, right? Before we get into it, we're, sit, we're doing something with the information a priori, so our mind works. So our minds are capable of taking in sense data and, uh, and synthesizing that into concepts, which are abstractions of reality. That's what concepts are. So the transcendental method is what, uh, the way I look at it is recognized as it performs the reception of waveform and particle emanation into perceptions as transduced through receptors, usually protein receptors, linked to the resources of biochemical pathways and, of course, cellular organization through a neural electrochemical action potential driving signal transduction cascades. So that's, so that's where I put uh, ne neuroscience and neurological perspective with my metaphysical acumen. So the outcome of that reception, the reception of sense data and response are abstractions of a cumulative sense data into the panoply of concepts which populate the faculty of reason that we call understanding. Now, those electrochemical data are translated into patterns and then concepts of pure reason is itself the unknown in truth metaphysics. That's the unknown. So this how will always remain an unknown because it is unknowable, because it requires a means to experience the world outside of sense-based phenomena. The other world that we cannot obtain, we can call them the noumena, or again, the thing in itself, okay? Not even the transcendental method can reach that level of metaphysical truth since its function is to explain how we organize the phenomenological world or physical reality, okay? So we do not exist in a Newtonian universe. I want you to understand that perspective, right? What do I mean by that? The Newtonian universe says that space exists and time is infinite, Space and time, actually, if you think about non-Newtonian quantum physics, are actually now believed to be coordinates in a curved universe where there is no meaning of space without designating time. So our science has already gotten around to understanding this. By no means is it not been allowed to get to this point because our great physicists and chemists, particularly during the early quantum chemistry and quantum mechanical days of the early 20th century, 
and then the whole subject of relativity, those were all readers of Immanuel Kant. They never gave him due uh, respect to say that they that he, reading him influenced their mind view, but it did. And of course, Kant would argue that Copernicus influenced his mind view. Think about the, what Copernicus said. Before Copernicus, before we were using optics to measure the, the world around us, right, the planets and the sun, we thought we were the center of the universe, right? We thought we were the center of the universe. Now, that would be letting the world tell us what our knowledge is. But when we got a sharper lens, we said, no, wait a minute. The Earth actually orbits around elliptically around the sun, now, we learn that by doing scientific method, by do, being more observational, by generating hypotheses and testing those hypotheses, right? And getting data and getting data back and determining finally that our senses, just our raw senses, our raw ideas were wrong. So that just, just accepting the information coming in and saying that is reality has never worked. We always have to sharpen the lens, right? So that, that's really an important thing. So even like Spinoza, uh, the, the, the great uh, pragmatic um, philosopher of um, Spain, he ground lenses, right? He ground lenses. That was his day job. So I've always thought that's kind of interesting. He ground lenses so he, he could allow astronomers to see things more sharply and microscopists to see things more sharply as he tried to divine the world too through uh, his understanding of metaphysics, right? All right, so that's all really an important thing to understand. So I want to tell you this too. This is something that's really important to where I come from, metaphysics and epistemology. This is really, really key. We don't exist in the Newtonian universe where space exists and time is infinite, as I said. Space and time are coordinates in a curved universe. So... There is no meaning of space without designating time. Time is an abstraction of the relationship between two or more events. That's what time is, okay? It's abstraction of a relationship between two or more events. And space is where those events occur. Therefore, I maintain that so-called objective evaluations in space and time can themselves possess ontological features, what, what is there, Ontological features such as measurement and representation. However, while evaluations may be ontological features, right, I don't obtain that these phenomenological elementals, that is space and time, themselves possess such ontological characteristics. Space and time are not in a state of being. They are rather in a perpetual event of becoming by sharpening our senses. The measurement of an event is only a means to extract information. And such data does not hold within itself being. Okay? That's what I want, that's the point I want to make here. Now you can calculate the aggregate mass of Pike's Peak. Okay? So here, here's a an example. I hate using examples because when I do, I'm afraid I'm removing myself from the larger theory. Okay, but let's do it for a moment here. Okay. You can calculate the aggregate mass of Pikes Peak. One time my son Damien and I did this. We used to live in the shadow of Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs. Actually, Black Forest outside of Colorado Springs. You can calculate the aggregate mass of it by doing so 
though, it's not proving the being of that source of waveform input as objectively a mountain. We call it a mountain because that's how our synthesis using the synthetic a priori, the synthesis of the a priori has landed us. Now, if you're a cephalopod and you're measuring things by your um, the, the pod structures on your extended um, ligature, you're not going to see a mountain at all, right? It's not going to come off as what we call a mountain. So it has to do with how you sense something, whether or not it appears as a mountain. And then we call it a mountain, and then we say that that is objective reality, but really it is subjective reality because it's from the mind, the mind working in concert, harmonizing with the senses, you see? So that's what I'm saying. Without the complex neural circuitry and networking of the central nervous system that we have, the raw sense data from the Rocky Mountain Front Range there by Colorado Springs, including Pikes Peak, would just be in the realm of electromagnetic spectral speculation, right? That such a mountain can be experienced is, of course, definite and provable. You can tell somebody, hey, go to Colorado Springs. The highest mountain you see there, that 14,000-foot peak, that's Pikes Peak. Sure. But to affirm that Pikes Peak is a thing in itself, right, without the mind having a, a, a thinking about it, would mean that it would exist as it is, even when there is no sense data to support it. And I argue that's ridiculous. Only the way you sense it does it turn out to be a mountain. So our senses, if you following along, are attuned to events in our world, and we can be confident that when we experience them, they are indeed part of our phenomena, the phenomenal world, right? Of course. But that phenomena, requires the ability to sense it in a specific way. And that requires an agent, in this case, human being, with the capacity to have that experience. And that is the a priori, right? The ice cube tray. If our protein receptors weren't set to be stimulated by the electromagnetic waveform being emitted by the mountain, by the way that we are receiving them, but rather we're blind to that phenomena or receive the information differently, say as heat, we would never know the mountains existed at all. So this is how every sense data, every sense data should be understood. That's what I'm saying. Now that some event is radiating the, the mountain itself, because radiating something, we, we, should, we should be able to agree. But to what extent that system is without the stimulus, receptor, translation, measurement of its moment, we cannot have any knowledge whatsoever. There's no way that there is knowledge there. Knowledge being defined as justified true belief. So our electrochemical, sensorial, neurological system is the lens by which we experience the world. We never actually see the lens because that's what we're using to experience the world. That's the transcendental method. But we use the lens, it's part of our mind, a priori, and then you can understand that as our central nervous system, right? The unique kind of central nervous system that is the human one. So existence cannot be isolated as a pure phenomenon. It can't be experienced unless it's used to synthesize some cluster of phenomena, like Pike's Peak. So Pike's Peak is a 14,115 foot 
cyanogranitic, occasionally snow-capped rocky incline, rising up from Manitou Springs near Colorado Springs, Colorado. In that sentence, that whole thing, when I say is that, the word is performed simply as a copula. Okay? It's just a copula. So we can assume that Pikes Peak exists, but existence itself is not a predicate from which you can determine that Pikes Peak is indeed a real, objectively real phenomenon. So we don't say that Pikes Peak exists, and then, by the way, its features are the geology and geography. We'd never do that. So its existence is already taken a priori. It's instantiated in its presence. It's not separate. So existence cannot perform as a predicate. It is as we encounter events in the world. We experience the world as a space-time phenomenon because our senses are attuned toward waveform particle reception, conversion to a perception that are themselves synthesized by the recognized faculties of reason and the mechanisms of understanding, imagination, and contemplative thought. Okay? So I'm going to leave you there. I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to get back to part two on this. Uh, so we're well into me trying to get into my epistemology and we're sort of bracing and we're sort of occasionally apprehending my metaphysics. And I want to, to give this out in Authentic Biochemistry Podcast so that you get an idea about how metaphysics and epistemology are the grounding of a scientific worldview. And again, not the other way around. That's another important thing to consider. What is the grounding? So <clears throat> I'm going to leave you with that right now, and I'm going to say bye for now.